Welcome, everybody. We apologize for being a few minutes late on our live stream. It's definitely a reason that's telling me the evil one does not want you to be with us. And we are here to talk about a very important topic. It builds from our last week's topic on uh, God the Father in the Old Testament, and that is the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins. Now, this is very important because people think they don't apply anymore today. But as your the first title slide shows, we're going to talk about that. So let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our minds and hearts to receive the grace you wish to bestow and to know you better so we can love you better. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I apologize. Nothing worked this morning. I couldn't get the downloads to work. I couldn't get the slides to copy. I couldn't get them to upload. Woo. So again, running over here out of breath, I prayed to Mary. I, I, one of the things I'm going to be talking about is the Ten Commandments says, don't break the speed limit. I just did, getting on the way over here. So, so God bless you for staying with us. Now, Let's take a look at our first slide. Now, we all know, right, that the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai for the Jews, right? Well, sort of. They are recognized, the Ten Commandments, as the moral foundation, not only for the Jews, but Christians, Muslims, basically everyone. Why? Let's look at our next slide. The natural law. The discovery of natural law is a meeting with God. What is that? Okay, although the Ten Commandments, all right, were given through Scripture, they're part of the natural law. What does the natural law mean? The natural law is basically what we can know by human reason alone. Things that we know without even having to have proof that God exists or even faith. Everyone knows murder is wrong. Everyone knows stealing is wrong. Everyone knows adultery is wrong. And that's what we're going to talk about. So everybody can know these things because God puts them in our heart. That's called the natural law. All right. And that is how even non-Christians can get to heaven. Because in the natural law, God puts onto every heart what is right or wrong, even if they don't have access to church or scripture. They'll be judged differently than us, and that's a whole nother talk. All right, so now, the problem is original sin, sin has darkened our intellect, so we're not able to see these things clearly of the natural law that we normally should. So God stepped in, and he gave us these 10 commandments as part of this covenant that God made with Israel to free them from slavery, but not just the Egyptians, slavery to sin. Now, these 10 commandments come from the Bible, but here's the thing. They're in two places in the Bible, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Now, neither of those two places, Exodus or Deuteronomy, clarify on how to divide the 10 commandments. So the Protestants have followed Exodus and Catholics have followed Deuteronomy, but yet I bet you've been told that the Catholics changed the Ten Commandments. 
I've been told this. I've been told that the Catholics change the Ten Commandments and that they don't follow the Bible because they follow Exodus. No, we follow Deuteronomy. And basically what St. Augustine summarized, whereas the Protestants follow the Greek fathers. That's okay, but let's look at our next slide. Here you see the difference. Now it's a little jumbled there, but you see we both believe in the first commandment that we shall not have any other gods besides our God. But look at the second commandment. On the left, the Protestants say, do not have graven images. Well, we put that in the first commandment. That's part of it. If you're, if you're not to worship other gods, you're not going to have graven images of them to worship them. And people say, well, Father, the Catholics worship these images. No, we don't. Well, you took it out of the Ten Commandments. No, we didn't. Read Deuteronomy. It's in part of that first commandment. And so we, instead of separating it out, it makes sense. It's just a duplicate of the first. If you're not going to have any foreign gods, you're not going to have graven images to worship them. So we, and remember, God didn't say you can't have graven images. He told Moses to carve images of the angels for the Ark of the Covenant and the bronze serpent to heal in the desert. We'll talk about that. Now, the next one and the fourth commandment, look up on your screen it says to keep holy the Sabbath. Now, what's interesting on that is we don't honor the Sabbath in the same way. We honor the Lord's Day. The Sabbath is Saturday. We honor the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. So look at ours on the right is commandment three, keep holy the Lord's Day. And then finally, down at the end to get 10, the Protestants jumbled them or put them together as do not covet, whereas we Catholics put in nine and 10, do not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's good, because a wife is not a good. A thing is not a person. A person is not a thing. So this is very important. Now, the two forms may have slightly different numbering, but the meaning is the same. They maintain exactly the same substance. So let's look at two videos that I want to show you that back-to-back -back are short, but I think explain this. The first one is Brian Mercier, who I like his work. So let's watch the first video. I get this all the time in my comment section. People telling me that it changed the Second Commandment. And that if you looked at that picture I showed earlier, it showed that what the Bible says and then what the Catholic Catechism says. But what they won't say, because they just don't know, is that there are actually two different lists in the Bible of commandments. There's one found in the book of Exodus, and there's one found in the book of Deuteronomy, and they vary slightly from each other. Catholics have always forever used the list in Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy it actually keeps the first commandment, thou shalt have no false gods before me, and the second commandment, which Protestants use, which is you shall not have any false idols or graven images and you shall not bow down to them. That's the second commandment for Protestants. For Catholics, it's thou shall not take the Lord's name in vain because that is the way it's mapped out in Deuteronomy. And in fact, Deuteronomy splits the coveting of commandments nine and 10 into don't covet thy neighbor's wife and don't covet thy neighbor's goods. Whereas in the book of Exodus, it actually puts those two together and just says, don't covet. And it splits the first commandment into two different commandments, which is thou shall not have any false gods and 
you shall not have any graven images or idols and you shall not bow down to them. See in Deuteronomy, the list there, it actually treats thou shall not have any graven images or idols and bow down to them as part of the first commandment because that's what it is. God says, don't have any false gods before me. And if you don't have any false gods, then you're not going to make idols and you're not going to bow down to them and you're not going to worship them. That's part of the first commandment. And that's why Deuteronomy doesn't separate them, whereas Exodus does. But Exodus is also the book where they worship the golden calf and they bow down before it. And right after pledging allegiance to God, they bow down to a false idol, a golden calf. So God perhaps had to parcel that out a little bit more to them. And uh, But both are scripture. Both are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they're just two different lists. The Catholic Church didn't change the second commandment. It didn't take it away. It just treats it as part of the first. Don't worship false idols. Don't worship false gods. And then the second commandment is, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. See, St. Augustine in the 400s parceled out the list that Catholics have used since the 400s, which is the list from Deuteronomy. And it was over 1,100 years later when the Protestants came around that they actually changed that and used through the list from Exodus. So if anybody changed anything, it was the Protestants who changed that after 1100 years. Catholic Church, we love the second commandment and the first, and in fact, we love all 10. Okay, so that's a quick, good summary of the difference between the 10 commandments. Between the Protestants and the Catholics, it does not mean they are different. Just the numbering and the way that they're gathered is what is a little bit different. The meaning is 100% the same. Now, I want to show you a minute and a half video, and I want you to engage as we show you in order the Ten Commandments that we follow from the Bible, from Deuteronomy, that we as Catholics must adhere to, and then we're going to expand on each of them. Let's watch this quick little video.
Isn't that a beautiful short video that engages us into what the meaning of God gave us through the Ten Commandments? And now I'm about to share with you, get ready if you want to watch this video again or just let it absorb in you. We're going back to seminary because God has placed you as part of our Marian helpers, part of our Marian family into my catechism class here, into my seminary. My goal is to take you through four years of seminary in a much more condensed and easier way to understand than I did. I went to actually more than four years because we had philosophy at Franciscan University before that in a lot of beautiful education, practicums and everything. And I'm gonna condense it all for you. So if you're ready, Put on your seatbelts, here we go. All right, so non-Catholics claim that the Ten Commandments in some ways, now not all non-Catholics, please, some, that Christ fulfilled the law. I just watched a video on this line online yesterday where a fundamentalist said that Christ has fulfilled all this, so they don't apply. Well, not so fast. Jesus freed us from the burdensome 613 Jewish laws, such as kosher laws and circumcision laws and things like this. But he did not free us from the Ten Commandments. Why? Moses wrote those 613 laws. God wrote these 10. They came from the finger of God rather than Moses. And they are important. The first Three commandments refer to loving God, and the second four through ten, or the second set, refer to loving our neighbor, as we'll see. Now, these together are called the Decalogue. You may have heard this. The Decalogue literally means ten words, and those are the ten words revealed by God on the mountain. Now, the Old Testament, they are ten words. This is true, but in the New Testament, they fulfill are fulfilled by Christ in a deeper way. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. So Jesus clarified this by summarizing it into two great commandments. Let's look at our next slide. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two. Jesus is basically telling us that we can do it all into a summary, if you will, but it goes even deeper. Now, the love of God and neighbor basically summarizes all morality, how we should live our lives. But just saying those two things isn't enough for people to understand it. So we go deeper in those two into the Ten Commandments to explain them deeper. Our catechism tells us that they are all linked. You want to know something scary? The catechism tells us that if we break one of the commandments, we break all ten. Because if we don't love our neighbor, we're not loving God. And if we don't love God, we're not loving our neighbor, and they're all connected. All right, now, in a way, these can all be summarized into 10 words, 10 words that give us, in essence, one great commandment. 
I'm not making this up. This is basically using what Jesus said. Let's look at our next slide. 10 words, one great commandment. You want to know your whole faith? Here it is. Let God be God and do the will of God. 10 words that summarize the whole law, the faith, and even those two great commandments. Because they're loving God, and when you do the will of God, you're loving your neighbor and him. Everything summarizes into that. This is powerful. Now, we can go deeper, though. Each one of those leads us to a series of things, each of the ten, that we need to do and not to do. Remember, these are not just thou shall nots. Those are sins of, of commission. I shouldn't have done this, and I did. The Ten Commandments also have reference to sins of omission. If you don't do something, you are also in violation. All right? So here we go. First commandment. Let's look at our next slide. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no strange gods before me. All right. Here's what our faith is teaching us. Basically, we must have to have faith, hope, and love of God. Not faith, hope, and love of money. Faith, hope, and love of God to worship him and to also have reverence for holy things and to do it through prayer. So it's more than just not believing in Allah or Muhammad. It's actively living our belief, faith, hope, and love in God. Now, what does it forbid? Idolatry. This is why the second commandment of the Protestants is right here with us. We don't have graven images to worship a calf. No superstition or new age stuff. Don't go to those tarot cards or palm readers. Any sacrilege, like of the blessed sacrament, Attending false worship service, like being a member of the Masons, all right? Tempting God. It forbids this. Don't say, well, you know what, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. Basically, you're making yourself God. And that's the biggest commandment or part of the first commandment. Almost nobody confesses this in a confessional to me, yet I bet we've all broken it. It's when we make ourselves God. Now, Idolatry is what this first commandment prohibits. In the worship of any creature or thing, person, money, pleasure, sports, or ourselves, violates the first commandment. All right? Doesn't mean, as I said, well, Father, I didn't break the first commandment. I don't worship Allah or Buddha. It's more than that. All sin serves some other God. The world, the flesh, or the devil. This is why we in religious life take the three vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. Because they counteract the three gods of the world of sex, money, and power. To overcome the god of the world of sex, we take the vow of chastity. To overcome the god of the world of money, we take the vow of poverty. And to overcome the god of the world of power, we take the vow of obedience. You see the power in that? <clears throat> in Exodus 20, verse 4, God prohibits graven images for the purpose of worshiping them. He doesn't say you can't have graven images. He says, you shall not carve images for yourself and bow down to them. If this 
wasn't a condition that you just don't worship him, that you can't have them at all, then God would contradict himself. Because God commanded in Exodus 25, verse 18, an angel to be carved in the Ark of the Covenant. And in Numbers 21.8, God commanded Moses to carve a bronze serpent. Well, if graven images were prohibited, then God just contradicted himself. It's not that you can't have an image. It's that you don't worship that image as God, like the golden calf. The Israelites said it was the golden calf that got us out of, uh, of uh, Egypt, not God. All right? So if all graven images were prohibited, please remove that graven image on your desk. Protestants even have nativity scenes with little baby carved Jesus. They don't say those are graven images. Well, yes, they are. We don't worship the plastic or the wood. We worship what it represents, Jesus. All right, we venerate or worship what it represents, not the image itself. You know, when Jesus became incarnate, he gave us images. Protestants believe in the Shroud of Turin. That's an image. We divine mercy. We believe in the image of divine mercy. That's an image. So anyway, that's the first commandment. All right, now, to ask yourselves a great way to have a good confession. This is what we're going to do today. We're going to show you how to have a good confession. The best way to have a good confession is to do an examination of your conscience using the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins. So I'm going to give you a series of questions. These are just some, not all, of what you need to ask yourself for each commandment before you go into confession and the Seven Deadly Sins. This is powerful. All right, let's take a look at this. Let's go. Number, let's look at our next slide. Do I give God time every day in prayer? Or do I give myself the most time? Are there things more important in my life than God, including soccer practice or shopping or television? Have I been involved with superstitious practices or the occult, tarot cards or palm readers or psychics? Do you watch those psychic shows believing that they know the future? Do I seek to do God's will or my will in my life. If we seek our will, we're putting ourselves as God. God is not God, we are. Have I ever received Holy Communion in the state of grave sin? That's a sacrilege. And so you see, these are important things to know about the Ten Commandments. All right, let's go on to the second commandment. That's from a Christmas story, I think, that image right there. All right. You shall not take the Lord, the name of our Lord in vain. Now, this is very important. The name of God was so holy. If you joined us last week, I explained that we didn't even, the Jews didn't even say God's name. And so <clears throat> this commandment says we must have reverence in speaking about God and holy things. Basically, keeping our oaths and our vows that we made in the name of God. If we break our vow of marriage or in religious life, poverty, chastity, and obedience, we made those vows in the name of God. We are profaning God's name if we don't keep our vows. And so this is something that's very important. What does it forbid? That's what it commands us to do. Now, what does it forbid us to do? 
blasphemy, the irreverent use of God's name. How many of us text, text OMG all the time? Oh my God. I always say, oh my gosh, right? So think about that. Uh, speaking disrespectful of holy things or false oaths. You know, a real issue I used to have when I used to want somebody to believe that I was telling the truth when I really was, I would always say, I'm telling you the truth, I swear to God. That's a false oath. We shouldn't be doing that, all right? And the breaking of vows, as I mentioned, because they're in the name done in the name of God. So the church requires respect for the names of people out of respect for the dignity of that person. And you can't get more than God, the very persons of the Trinity. So what are some of the questions we should ask ourselves before going to confession regarding this commandment? Let's look at our next slide. Have I wished evil upon any other person? Hmm. Have I condemned someone in God's name? All right, this is important. Have I condemned someone in God's name? How do I know this? Hopefully none of you have said it, but GD, using our Lord's name to damn something, is a misuse of God's name and power. All right, do I say it when I'm angry? You know, the Jews didn't even say God's name as I said, it was so reverent. Have I used God's name lightly or carelessly? Huh. Like saying JC in an expression or whenever we're angry. Have I insulted a sacred person, a priest? Yes, even if they don't do things the way you want. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina in the diary, you don't worry about the priest, I'll deal with the priest. Have we abused a sacred object like the Eucharist? Have I broken a vow that I've made in God's name, like marriage or religious life? These are important questions to ask before we go to confession. Let's go to number three. The third commandment, remember to keep holy the Lord's day, not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. We should actually try to go to mass on Sunday if possible. Even though Saturday, what we call the vigil mass, really is the mass of anticipation. Those were made, those masses were held for those who had to work on Sunday, like nurses or doctors. We really should try to go on Sunday, which is the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection. Now, what does it command us to do? It commands us to go to church on Sundays and holy days of obligation. Let's look at our next slide. For 2021, what are the holy days of obligation? They are January 1st, which is a solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. They are Thursday, May 13th of next year. This is the Ascension. Now, sometimes this is moved to Sundays in some dioceses. Wednesday, December the 8th, is the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception next year. That is a holy day of obligation. And of course, Christmas, which falls on a Saturday, and then we still go to Mass that Sunday. Now, that's where it confuses a lot of people. Some other things are not mentioned on here, like November the 1st, um, which is all Souls, uh, Souls Saints Day. The reason is, is it falls on a Monday. 
And when a, uh, a Holy Day of Obligation falls on a Monday, the church in the U.S. and some places around the world, you have to check with your diocese, actually um, counts the Sunday Mass for that obligation. So Monday it is not required to go, even though we recommend it. Now, here's the thing. The Lord's Day, very important. Do you know that the command is to keep every Sunday as a day of obligation. Not just those days I read. Those are non-Sunday days of obligation. Every Sunday is a day of obligation. So if we miss Mass for no reason, we must confess that. What does it forbid then? It forbids churches missing church through one's own fault or doing unnecessary work on a Sunday, not getting proper rest and prayer for God or on holy days of obligation, which are treated like a Sunday. Nobody thinks about this, about not shopping on December the 8th, the Immaculate Conception. It's a day of obligation. Why do we think every Sunday, though, we have to do this? All right. Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week, on a Sunday. To the Jews, that was the first day of the week. It recalls the first creation, and God took that day in the beginning of time as a day of rest. He created in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Now, because it is the eighth day also, the following week, it's both the first day of the week and the next Sunday is the eighth day. It's the day after the Sabbath, which for the Jews is Saturday. So it symbolizes a new creation. We call it the Lord's Day. This is Sunday. Now listen to what canon law says. Quote, on Sundays and other days of obligation, as I just mentioned, the faithful are bound to abstain from those labors and business concerns which impede the worship to be rendered to God. You know, I've only known one person in my life that first scheduled their vacation days around holy days of obligation. Not telling you you have to do that. You can still go to work and yet make mass, time for mass that evening, or prayer during the day or before work or when you get home from work. But how incredible is that to schedule your vacation first around holy days of obligation? One person in my life, I knew that. Amazing. Now they go on. The, to, the object here is don't do those things, those concerns which impede the worship rendered to God. The joy which is proper to the Lord's day or a proper day of relaxation of the mind and body, but most of all, the spirit. Hmm. We should avoid making unnecessary demands on others. People don't even think anymore about, we used to have the blue light laws or the blue laws or blue light laws that prohibited stores being open on Sunday. Every store is open now on Sunday. But as Catholics, we try not to shop on Sunday because that forces people to work on Sunday. If all Catholics stopped shopping on Sunday, you'd see stores close. God bless Chick-fil-A that closes on Sunday in honor of the Lord's Day. All right? Now, we must go to church. It's not a punishment. It's because our bodies need food. We eat. So do our souls. If you're a parent and your child isn't eating, the first thing you do is say to the child, you got to eat. 
If the child says, well, you know, I really don't feel like eating. It's been two months and I don't feel like eating. You would look at that child and you'd say, you know what? You're going to die. Not even just two months, two days. And so you, you make that child eat because you love them. You're not being mean to them. Just like God isn't being mean to us by telling us we need to go to mass because that's the food for our soul. All right? Now, St. John Chrysostom said, you can, why do we go to mass? Listen to St. John Chrysostom. You can't pray at home as you do at church where there is a great multitude where exclamations are cried out to God as from one great heart and there is something more the union of minds, the accord of souls, the bond of charity, the prayers of the priests, and you cannot get those alone. This is why we go to church. Prayer is public at Mass, not just private. Private prayer is good. Public prayer is perfect. The Catechism 2185 says, the family needs or important social service can legitimately excuse you from the obligation of Sunday rest. But it says, try not to make a habit out of it. Only when absolutely necessary. Don't jeopardize the faith. All right, now, what are the questions that we want to ask before going to confession regarding this commandment of the Lord's Day? Let's look. The Sabbath for the Jews was Saturday, and so obviously for Sunday it is us in the resurrection. Do I reflect on the meaning of the resurrection every Sunday? Have I deliberately missed Mass on Sundays or holy days of obligation? Have I tried to observe Sunday as a family day and a day of rest, which includes prayer, not instead of prayer? Catholics think all the time, oh, well, I went to the ball game on Sunday. Yeah, I was resting. I didn't work. I didn't go into the office. But you didn't say a single prayer. You missed the whole point. All right. Do I do needless work or activities on Sunday? Like shopping that forces others to work, as I said. All right. Now, let's go to the next one. Fourth commandment. Let's look at our slide Honor thy father and mother. One of my favorites, one of the most misunderstood. Now, what is commanded in this commandment? What is commanded in this commandment is to love, respect, and have obedience for your parents, no matter what age. Also, it works the opposite way. You are to have on the care of the part of the parents for the needs of children. It doesn't mean honor your children. It means take care of your children too. Like your parents took care of you and you honored them. You are to take care of your children so they honor you. The only way they're going to honor you is if you do your part to provide in the sense of a good parent. All right? To be and have obedience not just to fam appearance, but also family and civil authorities. To the civil laws, if they're just. Civil and religious superiors. For us in religious life, our fourth commandment is to, to, to obey Father Kaz. All right? 
Now, what does it forbid? It forbids the hatred of parents or superiors showing any blatant disrespect, especially publicly. It could also apply to disobedience of laws. All right? We have to obey things like the speed limit. I, I just admitted, my gosh, I was so worried about not getting here on time. I, I, I broke the speed limit. I prayed. I apologized to Mary. And I actually, this is the honest truth. I passed a police officer about three, about five minutes before we were to go live. And I, when I passed him, I said, that's it. I'm done. Right there in front of the shrine where there's never a police officer. Never have I ever seen a police officer by our gate as I'm passing between our house and where the shrine is. And there was one today. And he didn't pull me over. If he would have pulled me over, I'd probably just now be getting here. <laughs> so we are supposed to obey just laws. Now, what if they are unjust laws? Like you're a business owner and the U.S. government says you have to provide contraception and abortion services to your employees. No. You don't have to follow those unjust laws, but we follow the just laws. That's part of honoring our mother and our father, like our authority, if they are just. Now, so this, this commandment includes not just parents, but all family and authority, because it's the foundation of society. Satan wants to destroy the church and the family. Those are our authority. We grow up in the church and we grow up in the family. That's our authority. Satan wants to wipe that away. That's who we owe respect to. And Satan says, no, you don't. That's exactly what happened in the garden. So parents have a duty to children as well. You educate them, teach them their faith, give them discipline. So it includes respect for all authority. Like for instance, doing your taxes, all right? Voting, defense of your country. Doesn't mean you have to pick up a gun, but there's other ways that you can defend your nation, especially voting. All right, let's look at some of the questions. All right. Do I try to bring peace into my home life? All right. Have I broken the law thinking it's no big deal? Or have I criticized politicians without praying for them first, all right? I just said, have I broken the law thinking it's no big deal like the speed limit? Have I cheated on my taxes? Have I provided adequate care for my parents in their elderly years? Have I instilled faith and discipline in my children? These are all things that are important. All right, what about that famous call no one your father? Oh, I hear this. I'm surprised how much I hear this. Call nobody your father. Therefore, the Catholic whole religion is false. No, the fourth commandment just did. All right. What do we call our dad? He's my father. The rich man in Luke 16 yelled out, Father Abraham, and that's in scripture. Come dip your finger in the water. Paul calls religious leaders father. In Acts 7, verse 2 and 22, verse 1. St. Paul tells the Corinthians, I became your father. That's what a priest is, a spiritual father. That's why we call a priest father. This is important. We have many children. Jesus himself in John 8, verse 56 said, your father Abraham. 
So if he said, call no one on earth your father, why did Jesus just say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad? Jesus meant that there is only one creator, one true father as in Abba. He wasn't talking about earthly biological fathers. Oh, you can't say you have an earthly biological father. That's crazy. The fourth commandment says that. Honor your father. Jesus did not mean to never call anyone father at all. He meant we are no longer under the covenant of the patriarchs. Father Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. There's one true father, Abba. And that's what he meant by call no one your father. All right, let's go on. The fifth commandment. Thou shall not kill. Next slide. All right. Thou shall not kill. Basically, this is safeguarding our own life, our body, right? And that of others. We're commanded to safeguard others. That's why the pro-life movement is in line with the fifth commandment. What does it forbid? Unjust killing, suicide, abortion, sterilization. Do you know dueling? to the death, like sword fights till somebody dies? That's a violation here. You're saying, well, I, it, was a, it was a contest, it was a duel. No, because somebody was gonna end up dead. Endangering one's life or your limbs or yourself or others. All right, now, it is not wrong, watch my other talk I have online about end of life issues, it is not wrong to refuse extraordinary treatment, like somebody who is dying terminally ill with cancer, forcing them to take chemotherapy. That is not murder, whereas euthanasia is murder. I do a whole talk on this. It's on YouTube called End of Life Issues. And so this is something people don't understand. It's either extraordinary or ordinary means it determines if it's murder or not. Something like straight feeding tubes. If I needed a feeding tube in my side just to survive, but every other way I have a normal life, you can't remove that feeding tube. It's an ordinary means. All that means is I eat through my side instead of my mouth. So those things are factored into the decision-making at the end of life. But other things are permissible, like the death penalty, has traditionally been, I know there's some changes now with Pope Francis, but traditionally has been permissible if society is at great risk and there's no other way to deal with an individual where even prisons couldn't hold an individual. He kept getting out and murdering. Then self-defense of the people and the good of society can be allowed. What about war? I had one guy write me and actually called me on the phone. I was driving one day and basically blasted me because of just war theory and said under no circumstances were justified. Well, if that was true, we would be under the regime of Adolf Hitler today. And I don't think anybody would agree that's a good thing. All right, Peter Kreeft, great teacher of mine said, self-defense is legitimate for the same reason suicide is not. Because one's own life is a gift to God and we must preserve and defend it. So if our nation is under attack, we must preserve and defend our lives. 
It's the same reason that's commanded to do that, why suicide is wrong, because you're not defending the life you're taking. But there are other circumstances there with mental illness and whatnot. Now, this is why self-defense can be a duty to protect the common good against an unjust aggressor. Basically, this commandment is to uphold human life, the sanctity of life. That's the main point. But Jesus expands this commandment. Thou shalt not kill goes into prohibiting unjust anger, believe it or not. Hatred, vengeance, and to require Christians to even love their enemies. Hatred falls under this. So does something even like gossip. You know, I've never had anybody confess to me breaking the fifth commandment. You shall not murder. Praise God, I've never had anybody in the confession. No, I take that back. I am sorry. I had one about five years ago. Six, four, five, six years, whatever it was. And one confession for a murder. But I've never had anybody say, Father, I broke the fifth commandment. I completely murdered the reputation of my coworker. Murdered their good name. This falls under that as well. And so these commandments are wake-up calls for us to discern a good confession. Let's look at some of the questions we should ask ourselves. Have I ever had an abortion or encouraged anyone else to have an abortion? Have I abused alcohol or drugs which can indirectly lead to destruction of the body or life itself? Did I give scandal to anyone, leading him or her into sin, killing their soul? Oh, my. This is a common one for young adults talking their boyfriend or their girlfriend into sexual intercourse. They're not comfortable. I really don't feel like this. Oh, come on. Don't you love me? Don't you love me? And they do it. That's a mortal sin. You just talked them into doing that mortal sin. You just killed their soul. This is something people don't think about. Have I harbored hatred in my heart or unforgiveness? Unforgiveness is deadly. Jesus said, I can only forgive in the way you forgive. I can only forgive you in the way you forgive others. Wishing them death or worse, to go to hell. Now, sometimes I understand that's just an expression. I, I, I look back, and I've, I've said that in my life before. Now I feel terrible about it. I say to a friend, oh, you know what? Get out of here. You just go to hell. No, we never, ever want to say that. We don't want to say that. All right? Very, very important. All right, now, next slide. Have I conducted condone sterilization or other forms of birth control, vasectomies, tube tying, those prevent life. Have I engaged in sins against human life, such as artificial insemination or in virtue fetal fertilization? Have I approved of euthanasia? Oh, well, you know, grandma's of no use anymore. She's just suffering. Let's end her suffering. Mercy killing. There's no such thing as mercy killing. Have I actually taken someone's life, either directly or indirectly? Not necessarily talking war, self-defense, 
but other ways. All right, these are all questions to think about. All right, next, sixth commandment. Oh, this is a big one. Shall not commit adultery. Oh, well, that's only for married people, Father. No, it commands chastity in word and deed. We'll get to thought in commandment number nine. Right now we're talking action, words and deeds. What it forbids, you kind of know this, obscene speech, impure actions, either by yourself or with someone else, pornography, masturbation, all forms of sex outside of marriage, either heterosexual or homosexual, it's forbidden. Now, the church teaches that, yes, we are sexual beings, okay? We are sexual beings. The church sees sex, though, as more than just a physical act. It is a uniting that that, that between married couples, the only two that have that lifelong commitment. It's a complete giving of yourself. If you're only going to give of yourself to someone completely, then it is with the bond of marriage so intimately that they know you. That's why the Bible used to call sexual relations. He knew her. That's the only way. But it's not just physical. It affects the soul. That's why, do you know that one of the common ones that, again, I never hear committed, and I look back on my life, I've been guilty of this too, is emotional adultery. We could be so emotionally involved even with another married person that, yeah, we're not physically doing anything wrong, but emotionally we've become attached and we're pulling them away from their spouse Emotional adultery is dangerous. So if you're seeking sexual pleasure alone outside of its intended purpose in marriage of procreation or unity of the spouses, we have done adultery. Now, here's some things that people don't think. Are all sexual sins the same? No. All right. We have lust in the mind, which we'll talk about more, but then it turns into action. Do you know that masturbation is worse than lust? Lust is impure thoughts. It's actually worse because it involves not only a physical act, I mean, sorry, not just a mental act, but a physical act, which is more than just impure thoughts. You're now acting on it. Pornography is worse than fornication. This is according to some of the spiritual doctor, um, um, theologians. Pornography is worse than fornication because it brings a third party. You're bringing a third party into the situation. Do you know that homosexuality is worse than heterosexuality outside of marriage? Because it's not natural. Thomas Aquinas says, at least heterosexual activity outside of marriage is natural. It's still sinful. Homosexuality is unnatural. That's why the catechism states it as such. Don't kill me as the messenger. This is what the catechism says. That's why it calls it disordered. It's not, there's no such thing as being born that way. There's no gay gene. It is a choice and and an active lifestyle that we pray for conversion. We must have empathy. We must have joy, love in our hearts. We love the sinner. We do not condemn them. That's not our job but we hate the sin and we must help them. So what are some of the questions we can ask about adultery before confession? All right, next slide. Have I engaged in any sexual activity with another person 
outside of marriage? Have I engaged in impure acts by myself? Has each sexual act in my marriage been open to new life? All right, here's an interesting one. Theology of the body. Do you know that very few times that I counsel people, do they understand the sexual act even within marriage? People think just because they're married, any sexual act goes. No, within marriage, you could be guilty of lust. It should be out of love that you have the marital act, not out of lust. Even with, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be personal here, but I think this is important for people to understand. Even regarding oral sex, the teaching of the church, John Paul, I'm sure he was uncomfortable talking about this and theology of the body and other great theologians, that oral sex is actually allowed on the female if it's part of the lovemaking act that includes conjugal relations to help the female to achieve pleasure. But actually, oral sex on the male where he finishes anywhere other than outside of intercourse with the female is not allowed. Because when the male finishes or climaxes, it is for it to be the purpose open to life which would only be inside the female. So one of these weeks, the talks be a little uncomfortable, but I got some requests to do theology of the body. We'll cover such things. All right, now, do I seek to be chaste in my thoughts, words, and actions? And, oh, here's a big one. Am I careful to dress modestly? Now guys and women especially, but men too, I seen them at the gym. Are we dressing modestly or to sexually turn on other people? These are questions that we need to ask which fall under this commandment. All right, next. All right, this is important. Okay, let's keep going. Next, thou shalt not steal. The seventh commandment. Let's talk about this. All right, what does it command? It commands respect for the property and rights of others. Paying of just debts. If you have a debt, we are obligated to pay. Paying just wages to employees if you are an employer. That's why I morally have to always think and pray on this for our employees at the Association of Marian Helpers. All right, the integrity of public office. What does it forbid? It forbids things like theft, damage to the property of others, not paying our debts, not returning something that is found or borrowed, if you know it's not yours, you should look for the owner. Not paying just wages, all right? Not paying just debts or paying just wages, bribery, cheating, fraud, accepting stolen property, not giving an honest day's work for wages. How many of you confess that? How many of us working from home spend some time on the internet, even hours, yet bill it to the company. That is stealing. Falsifying your time cards. Well, you know, I didn't come in to 8.30, but I'm putting 8 o'clock, nobody was here. Breach of contract, stealing the ideas or credit from somebody else at work. These are all things. So let's look at some of the questions we can ask ourselves before a confession. Confession. 
Let's look at our next slide. Have I returned or made retribution for what I have stolen? Do you, if you stole money from a company years ago, or maybe recently, but you know you would get fired and you need to provide to your family, do you have to necessarily go and admit you stole the money? No, but you can give it back in other ways. You can give it back anonymously. You can give it back through hours work that you don't put on your time card. So you can give back in other ways. You're not obligated to have to necessarily say, boss, I cheated and stole the money because then you lose your job and now you don't have to wait to provide for your family. But you must make restitution. You must. Do I waste time at work, school, or at home? Have I lied about my hours, as I said? Next slide. Do I gamble? Denying my family of their needs instead of money that I should have on my family, I'm gambling it away. Do I pay my debts? Do I seek to share what I have with the poor? Have I cheated someone what is rightfully theirs? All right, very important. All right, next. Let's go to the eighth commandment. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What is this command? Truthfulness. Respect for the good name of others. Confidentiality. It forbids things like lying or injuring another's name, slander, all right? Telling tall tales, rash judgment. Boy, we're all guilty of that. Bad speech, violating secrecy. Somebody tells you something. Do you know that not just priests can break the seal of confession? Do you know you can break the seal of confession? I've gone to confessionals at churches where there were people standing literally a foot outside the door and they could hear the entire confession. Don't do that, please. Because if you hear it, even if you don't tell anybody, you've broken the seal. Well, I didn't, I'm not going to tell anybody, but I wanted to hear what John did. You just broke the seal of confession. You are supposed to run away if you hear a confession being given. People don't understand this. This is very, very, very important. All right. These are the things. Now, rash judgment can be a sin. So can talking bad about others. Now, there's two versions of this. The church teaches you could be sin sinning in calumny or detraction. What does that mean? All right. Detraction means I'm telling something about somebody, but it's true. Problem is, they don't have any need to know that. They don't have any right to know it. Like, for instance, there's no reason that I need to call my sister at home and say, did you hear what brother so-and-so just did? Well, of course not, Chris. I'm not even there. I'm in another state. Well, yeah, let me tell you what brother so-and-so did. It's true, but my sister has no right to know that. She has no right to know that he has an alcohol problem. Now, it's different if... He has an alcohol problem and he's been drinking and your child's getting in the car with him. Now you need that information. It's pertinent. Now on the worst side is calumny. Calumny is basically saying something about somebody that is not true. So this is where we get into really seriously bearing false witness. All right, so let's look at some of the questions that we can ask ourselves. Have I lied? Even white lies. Do I speak badly of others behind their back? Am I critical, negative, or uncharitable in my thoughts of others? Do I keep secret what should be kept confidential? Do you know bragging of ourselves falsely? 
or exaggerated flattery, bragging about someone that is also not true, like, oh, you did such an amazing job and they really didn't because you just want to get promotion. That's also not true. These are sinful. All right, now let's go on next. The ninth commandment. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. It doesn't mean just wife. It could mean husband, boyfriend, girlfriend. The commands are purity now in thought. In commandment number six, it was action. Do not commit adultery in action. But now we are saying don't do it even in thought. That's why Jesus said, I, you heard it say, do not commit adultery. But I'm saying you don't even think, even have the lust. So here it forbids impure thought, desires, even sexually suggestive flirting. All right? It's about, what it is about is desire of the flesh. Not just acting on it, but desiring it. Captivating us. We're, we keep invoking impure thoughts in our minds, enjoying it. This can apply even to one's spouse, believe it or not. That can be lustful. So let's ask ourselves some of these questions. Have I caused impure thoughts by reading movies, TV, conversation, or curiosity? If I know music has sexual, or a movie has sexual content, do I watch it anyway? Do I pray at once to banish any impure thought or temptation? Ooh. It's the first thing I ask in the confessional. Father, I'm struggling with this and this and act of impurity with myself. Okay, when these temptations come, do you pray? One of the things I like to say is, first pray three Hail Marys before you do anything. See if that temptation is there after that. Because usually it, it isn't. Have I flirted with someone who's not my spouse? So these are all under things that we are forbidden in the ninth commandment. Now let's finish with the tenth commandment. You shall not cover your neighbor's goods. So here it's saying, be joyful what God has given you and given to others. Be content with what God has given to you and not worried about what he has given to others. Be joyful for what God has blessed other people with. If somebody's a good speaker, praise God. A better athlete than you, praise God. Um, a better accountant than you, praise God. Better looking than you, praise God. More social, praise God. He gave them special talents. He's going to give you other talents in other areas. So this is, this is important. What does it forbid? The desire to take, keep, or damage what somebody else has. It's not doing it like stealing commandment number seven. It's the desire to take it. The thought of taking it in commandment 10. All right, now, greed. There's a difference here. We'll get into greed and envy. Greed is to have more of what you already have or you don't need. I want more money. But envy is the desire to have what somebody else has. And you'll stop at nothing to get it. Even killing that person because I want their spouse or I want their house. This is the parable about the guys in the vineyard that killed the others because they wanted his inheritance. Jesus warns against this. All right, so let's look at our questions for the confessional. Am I jealous of what other people have? Are material possessions the purpose of my life? He who dies with the most toys wins, right? 
Do I have attachments to things, cell phones, laptops, computers, my house, my car, my TV? Am I joyful when I see the success of someone else? Or am I upset when I see the success of someone else? Man, am I glad George got fired. Man, I just didn't like that guy. I'm super glad that he got fired. Or somebody roars around you on the highway. Man, I hope he gets in an accident. No, that's not what it's all about. All right, let's finish up on the Ten Commandments. And I only have a few minutes left for the seven deadly sins. Do we have to obey these or are we free of these? As Jesus freed us from the ceremonial laws. No, let's look at this. The Ten Commandments are always enforced. Why? They give us deeper instruction of what Christ gave in living the two great commandments. They give us a deeper understanding. You know, once uh, um, when, uh, you know, when you see people say, well, the Bible doesn't apply anymore today. The Bible tells us we can't eat shellfish or cut our hair. So the Bible no longer applies. Yeah, we no longer have to be prohibited from eating shellfish or cutting our hair because Jesus fulfilled all ceremony and ritual laws. But the moral law, not only did he leave it, he deepened it. So this is what we have to understand. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament laws of dietary and ritual laws. The Council of Jerusalem even said this going into the New Testament, that Jewish ceremonial liturgical or purity laws didn't apply to Christians. And this is why non-Catholics always say, well, Jesus fulfilled all the law. No, he did, but he didn't abolish it. At least the moral law he didn't abolish. Jesus did not abolish the moral law. In fact, as I said, he made it harder. Not only do I say to you not commit adultery, but don't even think about it. Oh, wow. So Jesus made it clear that the Ten Commandments, the moral laws, are still in force. He told the rich man to get eternal life, he must keep the commandments, and he even listed them. Now, remember, the law is not abolished, but man is invited to rediscover the law through Jesus. Let's look at our next slide. Jesus said, you know the commandments. He even reinforces them. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. For this you shall not, as I said, he repeats it again in the other passages, commit adultery, murder, steal, shall not covet these. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it gives all the places Jesus referred to this. Now, what's interesting, read that bottom line. The only commandment not, not repeated was to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Why? Because the early Christians met on the first day of the week, the Lord's day. That's why our version of the Ten Commandments is technically, if you want to get technical, is actually more correct. Is to honor the Lord's day, not the Sabbath. We are not Jewish. We've come from the Jews. And so this is everything. So instead of promoting one command over another, Jesus defined the whole law 
as love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And no one, until Jesus put these commandments together, he made them into one. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus said, or uh, the Old Testament says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and he is one alone. This is what's called the Shema. This is the creed of Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4. There's one God, he alone. So when Jesus said that, love God above all, for he is alone is God, this first commandment to the Jew would not have been surprising. The Jews would have understood this. But when you said to Jesus, said to them, love your neighbor as yourself, this was interesting because it came from Leviticus 19, verse 18. But here's what's interesting. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, to the old Jews, that would have meant loving your Jewish neighbor, your fellow Jew. But Jesus did something else. According to him, it was more than loving your fellow Jew. It meant also including the Gentiles, who earlier they were allowed to hate by law. By law, the Jew could hate the Gentile. Now Jesus is saying, uh-uh. Jesus has taken away all boundaries. He took an old law and gave it a new meaning. Now, this is the meaning of the commandments. So religion to Jesus was loving God and loving all men, not just your fellow Jew. And so are we. We must love all men, not just our fellow Christians. People say, oh, damn those Muslims. I hope they all go to hell. They don't understand Jesus Christ. Well, the Jews, they missed that boat too. Let us not do the same thing. So the only which way a man can prove that he loves God is by showing that he loves his neighbor, all neighbors. This is mercy. Having love on someone and, and, and showing that love in return. Now, this is why the work that we do is so important here at the Marian Fathers, which you are part of as a Marian helper. St. Paul says, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And Aquinas says, when man is loved, God is loved. In other words, when you love your neighbor, Christian or not, you are loving God because man is in the image of God. This is powerful. So our love of neighbor for God's sake, is clear proof that we love God. Remember St. Paul, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his neighbor, he's a liar. Now here, though, be careful. Because the opposite extreme, this is very important. How many times have you heard say somebody say this? Well, they don't believe in God. They really don't believe in that. But they're really a good person. My own aunt said this to me about somebody she worked with. He lives a homosexual lifestyle. He hates the church. He absolutely despises anything religion, but he's really a good person. He, he loves his neighbor. Okay, that's good. That's a start. But if we love our neighbor only for the sake of loving our neighbor, with, without reference to God, like sometimes the hippies of the 60s would say that. I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. It's all about loving my neighbor. And everybody would say, well, that's a good thing. No, this love is an obstacle from the first commandment. 
Because the first commandment is you must love God first. It's no longer a genuine love because you're not loving God. To love on the natural level, just your neighbor, is incomplete. We must love on the supernatural level, which is our neighbor and God. It's not just enough to say he's a good person. You can't say that. So what do you do? You remember mercy. God loved us. He expects us in return to love him and love our neighbor. This is very important. If even if we dislike our neighbor, we don't get along with them. If we love them for the sake of loving God, we've brought the two commandments together. Powerful. All right, the natural law doesn't change or go away. No matter what we have done, no matter how much society wants to take away from it, let's look at our next slide. Even the Declaration of Independence, the natural law is the ultimate source of constitutional law. All right? Because the Declaration of Independence opens by appealing to the laws of nature and the nature of God. This is why, let's look at our next slide. This is why Moses, there's an image of Moses on the U.S. Capitol. Hopefully, still today. I don't think they've taken it down. All right. Now he gave us, God gave us the Ten Commandments. And those principles underscore the laws of our United States. This is why things like the right to life is so important. All right, I'm sorry, I'm running really, really late. Let's hit into the next slide, the seven deadly sins. All right, let's go through these seven deadly sins. All right, what are they? Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath or anger, envy, and pride. All right, here's what's interesting. They are called capital Capital because they engender or they foster other sins. They're so primary that they cause us to do all kinds of other sins in our desire for these seven deadly sins. In fact, I saw something kind of interesting. Let's show our next slide. You know who these people are? This is Gilligan's Island. If you were like me, you were a kid, you remember Gilligan's Island. Do you know that the creator of Gilligan's Island said the characters actually match up with the seven deadly sins? This is interesting. The professor, okay, he's down on your lower left. He was prideful, all right? Mr. Howell above him, he was greedy. He was the millionaire, all right? Mary Ann over to the far right, she was envious, always, always envious of Ginger. The skipper next to her was always angry, always yelling at Gilligan. Ginger next to the skipper was lust. She was always thinking sexually. Mrs. Howell, next to her, was gluttony. She always wanted more, more of something, like the clothes or whatever it was. And Gilligan, on the bottom there, was sloth. He was always looking to get out of something. And so it affects even hitting in our daily lives. You know, this is, this is very, very interesting. Now, how do we overcome our seven deadly sins? Let's look at our next slide. To overcome the seven deadly sins, we need to practice the virtues. Humility is the cure for pride. We'll talk about this. Kindness is the cure for envy. Temperance is the cure for gluttony. Chastity is the cure for lust. Patience is the cure for anger. Generosity is the cure for greed. Diligence is the cure for sloth. 
And why would that be anyway? I want to say something. Why is diligence the cure for sloth? Because St. Gregory Nazianzen said that the grace of a good deed is doubled when it's done promptly and quickly. Don't hesitate to do a kind act. The quicker, more speedy you do it is double the grace. The more prompt you do, so diligence cures sloth. All right, now, these are called capital because they're the main sins and they cause other sins to come from it. St. Aquinas said that this is very dangerous because in our desire to grab it, we commit all kinds of other sins to get what we want. Let's look at these in order. Our next slide, pride. This is the first of the great sin. What is pride? Pride is an inordinate desire for one's own self, your excellence, your praise. It's making yourself God. Why? This is the king's sin because this is what Satan did. He wanted to be like God. Now, pride is said to be complete when a person is so filled with it that he refuses to subject himself to the will of God or to obey his commandments. He loves himself more than God. You know, I had a priest once say to myself, I don't hate God. I, I just struggle with loving myself more. That's pride. And so we have to work on that. In a sense, a person with complete pride makes himself God. Now, this type of person can even, not always, that one priest said he didn't have contempt for God, but others do. They have such pride that anything to do with God, they hate. Why do you think Christianity is hated so bad? Because the pride of secular society. This is what Satan did. However, pride could be incomplete where a person doesn't reject God like this priest I was telling you about, but he has a desire for his own excellence to receive praise. Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't be proud of your own accomplishments. You should. You should thank God for the gifts he gave you, your ability. Like I said, if you were a good athlete, Barry Sanders, the best football player of all time, should thank God for the natural gift he gave him or Michael Jordan for being a great basketball player. Remember, humility is not Michael Jordan or Barry Sanders saying, you know, I wasn't a good football player. That's false humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And so this is what it is. Such a person is humble. Now, the brideful person has more of an ego trip. Motivated to do something simply to get praise or recognition. Now, here's what John Vianney said. Pride, listen to this, makes us hate our equals because they are equal to us. Our pride makes us hate our inferiors because we fear that they may someday become equal to us. And pride causes hate to hate our superiors because they are above us. So basically, we hate everybody. <laughs> so how do we remedy this? What are the remedies to pride? Regular self-examination and confession. Very important. 
the practice of humility by the meditation on Christ's humility. Think about how humble Christ was. This is how you do it. Remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Michael Jordan shouldn't say I'm not a, I wasn't a good basketball player. That's false humility. But he should think of himself less and give credit to his teammates. That's what humility is. All right, next, greed. Let's show that on the screen, greed. This is the inordinate love of having possessions or riches. It is when wealth or possessions become our major goal in life, the priority over everything. We can be greedy with material things. We can be greedy with our time. This is my big struggle because I'm always thinking, well, I gotta get this done, this done, this done, and maybe I'm not there for a brother who wants to, to recreate. I'm like, no, no, I got too much time or uh, too much work. I don't have the time. We could be greedy in our relationships, having people as friends just for status symbols or using them to go higher in our, our career. It can take the sense, Jesus warns about this. He said, be like children. They had a dependency. When you are greedy, there's a self-sufficiency, an independence of God. I got my money, I want more money, I don't need God. So to combat this, we need to be thankful in prayer for the many blessings God did give us and in, in how we can help those who don't have as much as we do. Remember, when we die, none of this stuff is gonna matter. So our Lord said, Jesus said in Luke 12, avoid greed in all its forms, how hard it is for the rich to enter heaven. That doesn't mean a rich man can't enter heaven. What it means is the rich man has to realize his power's not in his riches. And his riches mean nothing without God. And what does he do with those riches? Like Tom Monahan, very wealthy man, but one of the most spiritual, holy, and best Catholics I know. St. John Vianney, listen to this. He said, greed is an inordinate love of riches and the good things of this life. Jesus, to cure us of it, was born in extreme poverty and deprived of all comforts. He chose a mother who was poor. He willed to pass as the son of a humble workman, Joseph. Now that doesn't mean that if you have wealth, that you're evil. No, what do you do with it? And do you realize you're just a steward? God gave you that. So yes, we will stand before the Lord with empty hands someday. What is important is that we are filled not with money riches or possessions, but with love and good works. These are the real possessions. So have the desire for that, not physical things. All right, next. And we're running out of time here, but lust. We talked about this before. It's a desire for sexual pleasure. It seeks fleeting gratification and sees others as only objects. That's why pornography is wrong. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, inordinate love of the flesh is cruelty because under the appearance of pleasing the body, we kill the soul. In the end, lust just idolizes sexual pleasure. It breaks the first commandment. Do you know, I always say this in the confessional as somebody who's struggling. I think it's powerful. I heard this said one day. Do you know that to resist one strong sexual temptation is to pass a greater test 
than even that faced by Lucifer and his demons at the time of the fall. Wow. To resist one strong sexual illicit temptation. Now, not the love act in marital act in marriage, but to resist one strong sexual temptation, the temptation to look at pornography or to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. To resist one strong sexual temptation is to pass a greater test than even that faced by Satan and his demons at the time of the fall. Whoa. That is why things, this is the problem like with homosexuality. It turns sexuality into something based just on genital contact. I'm sorry, but our society is trying to define you based on where you put your genitals. This is not what defines love. It's part of love. I can love my brother. I don't have to have genital contact and trust me, I don't. This is something that society has turned to tell us that love is defined based where you put your genitals. No, it's not. Homosexuality turns sexuality into something based just on that. You are more than that. You are more than a person just based on where you put your genitals. You are a whole person sharing that in the love of God and neighbor. Conjugal love is different in marriage. It's that free self-giving action which represents the dignity of both the husband and the wife, renews the bonds, open to life. Homosexuality can't be open to life. This is why contraception is so wrong because it blocks that openness to life. You know, I love you, John, or Jamie, but I don't love you enough to have another one like you in the world. This is so detrimental. So to combat this, we should pray for the virtue of chastity to guard against these occasions of sin, which are all over on the internet and TV, have a clear vision of the goodness of a person, not in just their object, objectivity. Now we don't have to be Puritan where a woman's not covering her head and we think it's sinful. But we see the beauty of the person. The marital act is the way God intended it. So visit a spiritual director who recommends confession. Avoid idleness. Idleness are the idle hands are the devil's workshop. This is where he gets us. Have holy distractions, prayer, mass, reading scripture. All right, we're getting close here. Envy, the next one. Are you green with envy? <laughs> envy is sadness on account of the things that somebody else has. I see it as a threat to myself. Envy is worse than jealousy. Jealousy is I just wish I had something. Like I could be jealous of somebody who's holier than me. But envy is where I hate them because of something they have. And I'll even kill them to get it. That's why envy is dangerous. We'll stop at nothing. Envy breeds hatred, gossip detraction and resentment against our neighbor. Not only does an envious person resent another person's talents, looks, good looks or possessions or popularity, they take joy when they have setbacks or they suffer or something bad happens to them. Boy, don't fall into this one. Envy is vicious and it can become between anybody, even best of friends, even spouses. Some of the greatest saints it even happened to. St. Bernadette, 
She suffered because she had envy of other religious sisters. Remember, every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. <laughs> wow. All right, so the remedy, practice humility. Grateful for what God has given you and, and not wanting or hurting somebody else because of what they got. Think about the potential loss there if you do that, losing their friendship, but also your soul. All right, couple more, gluttony. What is the sin of gluttony? It's the inordinate desire of having too much of anything, especially food and drink. It's very dangerous to one's mental and physical health. Physically, if you eat too much, but mentally too, because a lot of times there's a spiritual problem underlying it. A person should always be mindful of abusing food or drink or anything too much, pornography or anything. A person should always, always think of those who don't have what you do, less fortunate, and who suffer from a lack of not having proper food or drinking water. It's another good reason to fast. Fasting, Pope Francis told us, actually gets us in line with those who don't have food, not just for our denial, but also to be in line with those who go without. All right? One must practice virtue of temperance to prevent gluttony. All right, next, I'm wrapping up here again. Two more. Anger is the inordinate desire for revenge. There's a difference between justified anger, like Jesus in the temple, where people are, are swindling each other, and wrongful anger, which is where you want to kill or hurt someone. Here, a person is angry if it's unjust. Now, just anger, righteous anger is okay. It's where there's an anger about an injustice in the world. I'm angry about injustices all the time. I'm angry about people being swindled or cheated. That's justified anger, right? This seeks justice. But anger, first and foremost, has to be justified. It can be wrong or unjustified if you violate somebody's charity. For instance, Anger offends someone's charity because a person is, uh, 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 what do you call it, um, inclined to hurt them in the process. If you are angry at someone, you are inclined to hurt them, either verbally, hopefully not physically, but especially verbally, telling them something like, you're a rotten, no good person. Second, it can offend against justice. Because what do you want to give them in return for revenge goes beyond what normally would be justified. So to guard against this, have the virtue of justice in your thought, in your words, in your prayers, to always be in control of the issue, to look at the example of Christ. Remember, justice is giving someone their due, not more punishment than they are due. It's unjust sending somebody to prison for life for spitting on the sidewalk. This is what we have to look at. You know, St. Catherine of Siena said, there is no sin or wrong that gives man such a foretaste of hell in this life as anger and impatience. You're creating your own hell on earth when you are nothing but angry or impatient. All right, last one, praise God, sloth. Not just laziness, but spiritual laziness, not just physical. Sins which stem from the vice of sloth are lukewarmness towards God, 
which leads us to other sin and disregard for our salvation. The remedy is remembering one's promised reward of sin, I'm sorry, of promises of either reward or punishment. You want to overcome sloth? Just remember what Jesus promised in either a reward or a punishment. A reward for those who labor for the kingdom, the punishment for those who do not. You know, Archbishop Sheen said, quote, sloth as a malady of the will which causes us to neglect our duties. Sloth may be either physical or spiritual. It is physical when it manifests itself in laziness, procrastination, idleness, or indifference, or nonchalantness. It is spiritual when it shows itself in indifference to getting better in one's character, a distaste for the spiritual, forgetting about devotions, a lukewarmness, lack of care of faith, or failure, failure to pray. Don't be slothful, Jesus said. The worst of the worst that pained him on his passion wasn't the great sinner, it was the lukewarm sinner. The person who said, I don't care. Jesus said, I will spew them from my mouth. No, we want to care. We want to care. So each Christian must realize how susceptible he is to these effects of original sin, these seven deadly sins. But with God's grace, and now we finally finish, with God's grace through the sacraments of communion, confession, adhering to the commandments, and practicing virtue, which is everything I told you about today, we can stay on the path to holiness. This are our best tools to do an examination of conscience before a confession. And hopefully, I helped you do that. Remember, Jesus said, you must be made perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Does that mean you can never fall? No, we're all sinners. It's though we have to be perfect in love. Try our best to love him and love our neighbor. That is the great commandments. Do the will of God. So praise God, the last slide from Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So if you said, Father, I'm really depressed because I'm mired in those sins. If you find a way to love God and love your neighbor, he's going to cover a multitude of those. And that may be the way that we find salvation. God bless all of you. Thank you for enjoying joining us. I'm sorry again how long this one went, but there's so much beautiful gift in our Catholic faith to explain. You may have to watch this again. I just gave you a whole entire semester that I had in, in seminary. You just did it in an hour and a half. God bless you, and may the Lord shine his graces upon you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why be a Marian helper? Because we Marian fathers celebrate a mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves, but we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. 
and we members of the Marian Fathers will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the Divine Mercy. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina that the Chaplet of Divine Mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the Shrine of Divine Mercy we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you want to learn more how to be a Marian Helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.